Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Financial Times has a great piece entitled, The Resilience Myth, Fatal Flaws in the Push to Secure Chip Supply Chains. They write, in the sweltering Asia summertime of mid-June, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company urgently dispatched a team to Japan to visit some of the company's equipment suppliers. Why, it wanted to know, were these companies saying that they could not deliver vital machines on time? TSMC is the world's largest chip manufacturer, and its suppliers had always been over backwards to provide what the powerful company was demanding, but for the first time, it was being met with apologetic messages. For further insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. She's the co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation in Montreal, Canada, and writer for Strategic Culture Foundation. And you can find her work on Through a Glass Darkly on Substack. Cynthia Chung. Cynthia, welcome back. Glad to be here. Financial Times continues, the problems are cascading from supplier to supplier and making it hard to resolve the global shortage of chips, the hearts and brains that power electronic devices from PCs and smartphones to automobiles. The trouble is these efforts touch only the visible end of the semiconductor supply chain. Beyond chip production sits a network of supplying equipment and other items encompassing hundreds of raw materials, chemicals, consumable parts, gases, metals, without which Boeingly precise process of chip manufacturing could not function. Cynthia Chung, your thoughts? Um, well, the just like the energy crisis and the uh, food crisis that's presently uh, going on, the United States has a, a central role to play in um, this bottlenecking that has occurred because they have um, seriously hindered China's uh, involvement in this market. And, uh, you know, TSMC, uh, Taiwan's chip uh, manufacturing industry and Samsung of South Korea, they are the leaders in the cutting edge of the chip industry. But the reality is that uh, you need a lot of chips that are not like cutting, cutting edge for basic consumer products, automobiles, um, connective devices and so forth that China was actually the major supplier for. And uh, with the trade war that has been going on with China and uh, certain banning of, uh, you know, China's access to certain types of uh, resources um, and ability to just get these chips out, um, it's been hurting uh, Western businesses as well and has created a, a, a bottleneck in the, the chip industry because the chip industry is, a, is an industry that requires several, several departments of extreme specialization, and they're all located all throughout the world. So no country right now has is anywhere near capability of uh, self-sufficiency or re resiliency. And uh, what has occurred with this trade war with China is that it has affected everything, 
including the United States as well, um, presently is is freaking out a little bit because, uh, you know, semiconductors are also a main component for military warfare. And uh, there's been a lot of contracts that have been sold over the last month or so to Japan, Singapore, Australia, South Korea, um, Germany. There's a, a, a potential sale for $8.4 billion. But the reality is that there's a, going to be a major, major backup for these military sales because of um, the the extreme shortage of semiconductors. TSMC, which is the leading chip manufacturer, is even saying that they're they're receiving orders uh, a year later from when they were supposed to be receiving things. And what this has caused is for China to also um, create their own, uh, self-sufficient economy within China as best as they can. And, you know, if anyone is going to become resilient in the next uh, few years, it will be China, um, who has already grown, um, faster than t- the leading chip manufacturing in Taiwan and South Korea over the, the last few years, there's a 33% growth. They're, they're functioning at full capacity in Shanghai, um, which no other chip manufacturing uh, industry is able to do. And they recently, just um, a month ago, they uh, came out with the N plus two chip, which actually is very similar to the TSMC seven nanometer chip. Uh, TSMC right now is the leader at five nanometer. They'll probably have three nanometer by the end of the year. But this is a, a huge breakthrough for for China. Um, that they have been able to to do this. And so even if China is only able to develop this within its own country and certain friendly co- export it to certain friendly countries, this has really put it um, in front. And uh, the United States is is concerned uh, for their pri- uh, their their military security <laughs> over this because they're now in a situation where they have to catch up because, their American company, Intel, has yet to produce a 7 nanometer chip. They hope to do it by the end of this year. And so the U.S. is increasingly finding itself uh, lagging behind, despite everything they're doing to keep China uh, <laughs> from being in front. You know, uh, the other thing I see here is that the destructive nature of the attempt by U- the U.S. to hold on to this global power. We see, you know, Europe getting extreme economic pain. We see, you know, significant economic pain here. And in uh, industry after industry, we see where the U.S.'s short-sighted move to pressure Russia, pressure China, pressure whoever for some natural resources. The globalist nature of the supply chain means that all all of the any of these moves will be self-destructive. Your thoughts? Yes, I agree completely. And the thing is, is that you know the U.S. they they recently passed the Chips Act, which is a uh, fifty-two billion dollars in subsidies. Uh, Thirty-nine billion are going to be going to uh, the domestic semiconductor manufacturing. But you know this is during a time of an energy crisis and a food crisis, and. There are a lot of critics that um, are thinking that this is this is money that is not being well spent because it's not even going to be um, giving the results that are expected. The U.S. is still going to lose the um, you know the race um, in in the sense in terms of the U.S. priority is clearly for their military um, equipment. It isn't for the welfare of the American people. But even with that. Um, there are many experts uh, that are saying, including um, one of the uh, one of the Morris Chang. He's a he's an uh, one of the formerly chaired TSMC um, 
high high uh, high profile person for TSMC. He even said, "quote." To the Americans, if you want to reestablish a complete semiconductor supply chain in the U.S., you will not find it as a possible task. Even after you spend hundreds of billions of dollars, you will still find the supply chain to be incomplete, and you will find that it will be very high cost, much higher cost than what you currently have. So what you said is exactly the, the case. Also, China, by the way, owns uh, the uh, fluorite, a mineral that is absolutely essential for fluoropolymers. They own 60% of that global production output. Mexico is the second highest at 10%. So there isn't even an ability to secure the essential resources to, to carry out this kind of um, what the U.S. has turned into, uh, again, an, an arms race uh, with China, when, you know, China is very far behind the U.S. in military spending, it's it's the U.S. that's driving that that direction for its uh, its own country and, and a certain part of the market. But it's not necessary. It doesn't have to play out that way. Shifting gears a bit, there's a piece in uh, the South China Morning Post. Jackson Hole Summit has market holding its breath and China has financial war with U.S. on its mind. As the market sniffs for any clues about what sort of rate decisions the U.S. Fed is favoring at the Jackson Hole Summit of central bankers, Beijing's policymakers and advisors are reviewing their own playbook with geopolitical tensions and financial war on their minds. Can you talk a little bit about how you see China looking at these threats going forward. And because as as I look at this, China has an awful lot of cards it can play, and it can play them in a number of different orders that can have dramatic impact, not only on the U.S., but on markets across, across the world. And I don't know that the United States so-called diplomats and, and other policy gurus are, are really understanding the depths to which China can go if China chooses to go that deep. Hopefully that question makes sense. Yes. Um, well, no, yeah, I, I again agree that it's completely short-sighted for the other reason that the reality of us entering into a increasingly smart, you know, digital world is that you're going to need hundreds of billions of chips for its manufacturing needs. And nobody comes even close to uh, being able to supply that capability than, than China. So the reality is that you can't even have that kind of world if China is, is, is taken out. And so there really needs to be a way to, to look at having a relationship with, with China. Right now, again, it's very much a, a military race the Americans have turned it into. Mm -hmm. And they've been doing everything they can to prevent China from growing in a way that, you know, we should really look at this as China's right to self-defend itself, mm -hmm. to have access to resources to defend itself, because China has never actually attacked another country. And, you know, for those who also make the criticism that China only copies, I want to remind uh, American listeners that in 1985, the American semiconductor in industry was doing very bad because of the Japanese semiconductors that 
were completely dominating the American market. And um, Reagan had uh, basically put through this uh, U.S.-Japan semiconductor agreement in 1986 that because uh, they were complaining that Japan was dumping these uh, semiconductors at below fair market price and they were not providing foreign chip makers sufficient access to its domestic market. Um, the U.S. forced uh, Japan to have the U.S. enter their market at uh, about 20 percent. They also took, Intel took the secrets from these Japs. So they copied, uh, actually, Craig Barrett, the f uh, former chairman of Intel, was the first one to do the copy exactly technology mm. transfer method mm -hmm. that we criticized China for. That launched Intel into the lead. And then what the Americans did is they crippled the Japanese semiconductor market. Um, they gave Samsung some, some of this uh, trade secrets. Samsung ended up being cutting edge. And Micron flooded the Japanese market with their lower end uh, uh, semiconductors at below market price in Japan. And it, it totally uh, crushed Japan's semiconductor industry in Japan has never recovered. It's never been cutting edge since. And now the U.S. is coming back to Japan to help them uh, because they're worried because Taiwan is the, the leader of, of all of this. And China could at any moment, you know, acquire the, the entire facilities for this. But, you know, the Americans have also been using this. And I would say in a much more unfair manner than, than China in this sort of competition. Um, yeah. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn has gone to Taiwan, and now the game starts. Now that uh, Nancy Pelosi went, has gone, every hawk around now has to make their pilgrimage to um, to Taiwan. Um, your thoughts on, uh, on and, you know, make the over-the-top statements, et cetera. We got about uh, two minutes. Your thoughts. Well, they're they're trying to, uh, I, you know, get Japan and uh, South Korea. I, they're basically trying to contain Russia and they're trying to contain, uh, sorry, not Russia, China um, with uh, the, the markets and, and so forth. But um, at the end of the day, the reality is that all of these countries, including South Korea and Japan, rely uh primarily on China for their trade. And so I don't really see uh, any of this sort of uh, American policy ultimately being successful. And again, you know, the American people should realize how much, you know, money is going into just this permanent warfare policy that's being led by the United States and really, you know, bring up the issues that are core for the American people, such as the basic energy and uh, food requirements. What about the the statement that that the congresswoman made about totally backing the independence of Taiwan? I mean, if you talk about aggressive, that's a, that's about as as aggressive as one can be. Yeah, I well, I think that they're freaking out because, and I think part of a, a lot of this has to do with the semiconductor situation. The okay. fact that that. China has had the N plus two, which is very similar to the TSMC mm -hmm. um, and so forth. But um, again, China has made it clear that they're not going to do an aggressive um, you know, military stance with Taiwan unless America turns it into a proxy war and China has no choice. Cynthia Chung, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. Have a wonderful weekend and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Biden officially announced on Wednesday that his administration is for giving up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for borrowers making less than $125,000 annually and $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, uh, marking the largest forgiveness of the loans per individual to date. Biden also again extended a payment freeze on federal student loans and interest accrual. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Uh, And he's the author of the op-ed, Biden's Bifurcated Student Debt Cancellation Plan, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. My pleasure. I'm going to ask you all to bear with me a moment. I think that that this is relevant. On April 9, 2020, Senator Biden, on the campaign trail at that point, outlined his steps to ease economic burden in the country. Here, uh, I think this context is important. He wrote... Quote, the news this morning of another enormous number of unemployment claims on top of the 10 million that have already been filed is devastating. These numbers represent catastrophic losses to our economy, but most importantly, they represent the loss of livelihood for millions of people across the country struggling to pay the rent, put food on the table, and keep the electricity on. These aren't statistics this morning. These are people. They are fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, sons, daughters, and grandparents who have lost their jobs. The economic crisis brought on by this virus is both accelerating and deepening. These unemployment numbers today are another flashing warning sign that our country and our people will endure enormous economic pain. It is our responsibility to move quickly and effectively to help them, end quote. One of the steps he promised was... He's directed his team to develop a plan to forgive federal student debt relating to the cost of tuition currently held by low-income and middle-class people for undergraduate public colleges and universities, as well as private historically black colleges and universities and private underfunded minority-serving institutions. He said, the concept I'm announcing today will align my student debt relief proposal with my forward-looking college tuition proposal. Under this plan, I propose to forgive all undergraduate tuition-related federal student debt from two- and four-year public colleges and universities for debt holders earning up to $125,000 with appropriate phase-outs to avoid a cliff, end quote. Jack. Before we get into your piece about the bifurcated plan, address those who are pushing back, crying foul, saying, I had to pay my loans. Why should people get a break now? This is going to raise inflation. And they've also said it sets a bad precedent. Jack, I think the context in which Biden proposed this on the campaign trail is important to doing analysis of what he was finally able to get through and sign. Your thoughts, Jack Rasmus? Yeah, well, you know, the same people who are complaining about, uh, you know, partial student loan forgiveness here, uh, say nothing about, uh, you know, the $700 billion and plus uh, still rising of uh, 
expunge debt mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for businesses. You know, I mean, they're totally silent. You know, if, if you uh, took the PPP loans, payroll protection plan loans, and uh, you turned them into grants. In other words, you just forgave the loans. And that was written from the very beginning that was going to happen. Uh, well, you know, you should say something about that, too. You know, but they're uh, I mean, they, they reveal their bias. You know, I mean, they have a hard, uh, hard time uh, accepting uh, working class, middle class household debt um, forgiveness. But uh, when it comes to business debt, well, no, they don't have a problem with that. And by the way, you know, that 700 billion plus is still rising. Um, not all small business. There are a lot of fairly large businesses and uh, individuals uh, who enjoyed a, a lot of the uh, forgiveness, you know, for that uh, small business so-called loan, you know, including uh, people like Jared Kushner, you know, who uh, who who had uh, written off uh, three million in loans, right? Kanye West, two point three million. Paul Pelosi, one point seven million, right? Um, what was that? Was Paul Pelosi's write off before or after he was uh, that DUI arrest? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, that was no, before. I'm that sorry. Was, I'm just no, kid- no. I'm kidding, Jack. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, whatever. He <laughs> right? paid his attorney, I guess, with it, right? Um, so. You know, a lot of these write-offs go on in business all the time. I mean, even Trump, Deutsche Bank uh, wrote off 287 million of uh, Trump's debt. Um, you know, it goes on all the time for businesses and, and investors and wealthy people. But, oh, you know, you go and do this for working class folks. Uh, oh, you can't do this. And, and it's really working class because we're really talking about you know, 125,000 annual income uh, or, or below. It's not the rich here that are getting their loans uh, written off. Uh, it, it's average folks. So, you know, it's kind of hi- hypocritical of these people uh, who are having a problem of uh, writing off even this, you know, partial debt that's going on in this Biden proposal when, uh, you know, they don't say anything about the uh, uh, you know, businesses and uh, wealthy people getting their loans written off. Does it also make sense in asking those questions about during the Obama administration and the mortgage crisis, the bank bailout? Does it make sense to ask that question there, too? Yes. Yes, it does. You know, because, uh, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve bails out uh, businesses, investors, individual investors, you know, who might have bought uh, treasury bonds or, or uh, uh, mortgage bonds. Uh, th- they, in effect, write it off when you give them zero interest, interest rates, mm-hmm. zero interest. You know, you're giving people banks, uh, what, four trillion dollars since March 2020, four trillion. I'm talking about. You know, to the banks who did need to bail out $4 trillion, real interest rates below zero, well, that's a bailout. You know, they take that free money and they uh, pay off their debts, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a two-step bailout. <laughs> no one says anything about that. Okay. So a lot of this is, uh, this is not an argument about economics. This is an argument about ideology. This is an argument that doesn't say this costs more or costs less or this is comparative. This bailout is comparative to that bailout. It's an, it's, it's an argument that says, ideologically speaking, 
This country, this ideology that we espouse economically is one that is a self-serving racket for the rich. All of the things we named, the wealthy people, they get socialism. <laughs> they get government control, bailout, blah, blah, blah. But ideologically speaking, anytime something happens for the working class, the working poor and poor, this, the questions about how we're going to pay for it, all of a sudden the deficit comes into account and all of these things. So my, my point being, this is an ideological discussion as opposed to an economic discussion, Dr. Rasmus. Yeah. Uh, well, look, you know, uh, this particular partial bailout uh, for, you know, the very poor students, uh, essentially, uh, amounts I've seen to estimates of about $32 billion a year. Okay. Uh, now, they're going at the same time, they're going to renew uh, paying <laughs> uh, for those still with the debt, you know, the forbearance, as they call it, the suspension of payments ends at the same time, January 1st next year, and uh, they're going to have to start paying again, and they're going to pay more than they were paying uh, because rates are going up. But that's supposed to bring in $50 billion a year, according to Biden. So figure it out. $50 billion a year uh, is going to start coming into the Treasury. Uh so-called 32 billion, which isn't really going out, it's just being wiped off, you know, it's not a cost that they're paying. Uh, well, you know, that's a net surplus of 18 billion a year. Where's the deficit increase from this if you got a surplus of 18 billion a year? It doesn't, doesn't exist. So all this talk about deficits is, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, cover. Uh, for what they're really trying to do, which is austerity. You see, we got austerity coming back uh, sort of under the covers and people don't don't realize it. Uh, we can talk about that too. Uh, but 32 billion a year written off versus 65 billion in six months that we're thrown at the Ukraine. I mean, that's okay. That doesn't bust the deficit, right? <laughs> 65 billion of free money, uh, and it looks like $5 billion a month is going to continue to keep that economy from collapsing over there. So the U.S. is is propping up Ukraine and will continue at least $5 billion a month, not talking about you know how much ammunition and, and uh, arms that they're also s sending. That's okay. That doesn't bust the budget, right? Oh, but you know, you give uh, some working class folks a, a, a little bit of a, of a relief here, with uh, student debt and all that busts the budget. You write in your piece another element of the system's crisis. And in fact, let me say this. I understand what Biden is doing, but he's not really getting to the crux of the problem of the cost of higher education in this country. With that being said, you write, another element of the system's crisis is the institutions of higher education in general in the USA. They've used the availability of easy obtained student loans from the government to steadily jack up their tuition and add all manner of questionable fees as shadow tuition increases. They've taken this student loan largesse and used it to fatten the ranks of college administrators, to raise the pay of senior administrators of colleges to levels comparable to corporate CEOs and embark upon, in many cases, needless expansion of campus building projects that have little to do with providing education. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, the system is set up, uh, you know, so... Uh, Everybody but the student benefits, right? Uh, the government gives absolute free loans, 
I mean, it's easy to qualify for for this, uh, uh, and. Uh, the students have the money to spend because of the loans. They got the debt, okay? Uh, so, you know, the, the college's administrations just, just jack up the price and uh, suck it out, you know? Uh, and also, you got to remember, it, it's arranged nicely for the banks. Uh, the interest rates uh, charged to students are between 5% and 7.4% right now, Right. Uh, that's what the government charges students for these loans. The private bank student loan rates are two to three percent. Now, why is the are the banks charging less than the government? Uh, because the whole idea is to get students to consolidate these government student loans with the private banks, push them over to the private banks. That's the way this thing is set up. And there's hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in private student bank loans, $1.7 trillion in government loans, and they push them over to the private sector. There's like almost $2 trillion in student debt, totally unsustainable. But the point is, why does the government price gouge the students at 5 to 7%? I mean, that's obscene. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of the problem. Uh, you know, that's part of uh, how this whole thing is, is set up and gamed uh, by those with uh, with money. Uh, and also, you know, you got, you got the gaming going on with uh, uh, universities and colleges and so forth. Look, it's obscene that CEOs in the private sector uh, are not getting any more than college presidents. They're, pay they're they're getting the same thing to college presidents. And then you got this super obscenity of colleges paying football coaches millions of dollars a year. Millions. Oh, they justify it saying, oh, it brings in the money and so forth, you know. Well, you know, the six million doesn't bring in the money. It's it's the exploitation of, of the the kids playing ball that brings in the money. Uh, the whole system is, is just corrupted. The whole higher education system is corrupted and the rich are getting rich off of it and the students are getting indentured deeper and deeper in debt. Some of them, you know, have paid, I know relatives who have paid $30,000 on their student debt and they still have the same level of student debt. Wow. Go, go figure that one out. Here's an interesting article. Analysis. Forget showering. It's eater heat for shocked Europeans hit by energy crisis. But, but, but here, I think the energy crisis is the wrong word. For instance, a crackhead, one could argue they have a crack crisis, but they decided to get, go buy the crack, right? This is a decision crisis. This is not an energy crisis. They decided that, they, that it was eat or heat, and now they're shocked Europeans. I think they better get unshocked. Your thoughts? Well, they won't have enough, enough electricity to get shocked. How's that, Dr. Rasmus? Rasmus. Okay, so, so we're talking about the uh, uh, energy crisis in Europe. We're off of the uh, student loan thing right now? Yes, yes. sir. Yeah, okay. I I wasn't sure where we were going. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that that problem's only just beginning. You know? uh, they are desperately trying to uh, store their energy. You know, they're running off to Algeria and, uh, and uh, 
you know, the Emirates and so forth. And they're saying, please, please, uh, you know, give us give us some more energy uh, so we can store it for the winter because, uh, you know, Armageddon's coming and economic Armageddon's coming for, for Europe, especially Germany in, in the winter. And uh, uh, now the banks are saying Europe is in a recession. You know, a German GDP uh, was absolutely flat in the second quarter. Since then, it's uh, fallen over the cliff. Europe is over the cliff. At the same time, they've got, uh, you know, double-digit inflation that's going to continue going higher. I think in the UK, they're predicting 17% uh, inflation right here. And, you know, in a continent, something similar, um, which means this crisis is exacerbated in Europe because the energy crisis is exacerbated. But what it means is... I've been predicting we're in recession. It's going to get deeper. And Powell said so. You know, Europe's in recession. China is slowing down quickly. Japan is stagnant. We're in recession, but they're not going to shake out inflation very quickly. So we're going to have a protracted period here of stagflation. In other words, prices may come down a little as the energy costs, uh, you know, come down because of recession and demand. That will come down some, uh, but it won't come down all the way. I, I think we're stuck in 2023 uh, with inflation of, a, you know, four to five percent at least and rising unemployment and recession deepening. And that's going to be the characteristic of 2023, stagflation. Of course, I'm really looking ahead. I'm really going out there and forecasting. But that's what economists should do. You know, mainstream economists, what do they do? They forecast the present. <laughs> they don't <laughs> forecast the future. And the past. Uh, they forecast the past. <laughs> what yeah, is it? Uh, Ten out of every three uh, recessions are, are forecast by economists? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, you know, what happens is uh, – you don't get a picture of where things are going. And I'm saying uh, in Europe, uh, it's not just an energy crisis. It's an economic crisis in which prices are going to escalate continually through next year. And the economy is going to contract. We haven't seen anything like this since the 1970s. And I think it's going to be worse than the 1970s in places like Europe. I'm not sure how serious it's going to get here, uh, but it will be stagflation, no doubt. Uh, we are in re recession, no doubt. You know, if you listen to mainstream economists, what did they say at the beginning of the year? Uh, they say, uh, oh, there won't be any recession. Uh, and then they change their story and they say, uh, oh, it'll be a soft landing. And, uh, you know, now they say, oh, it's a just technical recession. Uh, and now they're saying, oh, well, if we have recession, it's going to be short. Uh, I mean, they're behind the curve all the way. Uh, and they're going to continue behind the curve. This thing is going to be very serious come the winter, and it's going to be most serious in Europe because they have no energy in Europe. I mean, even the rivers, they can't get right. the barges up the rivers. Because they don't have rivers. Yeah, the rivers are <laughs> – I, I mean, what is the – the Rhine River is, is like 12 it's inches a creek. deep in places, yeah. something like that. So even if they wanted to bring coal or if they wanted to bring oil up the rivers, you know, to the inland, uh, they can't. And now they don't have any energy coming uh, from Russia because of the sanctions. Right? And, and, and to uh, that to that point, Jack, because we're going to we're going to run over here by about a minute or so. So I'd like for you to be fairly succinct with your answer in this in this Reuters piece that uh, uh, f uh, forget showering. It's eat or heat 
for shocked Europeans hit by energy crisis. And they write uh, a wholesale gas as wholesale gas and electricity prices surge. Millions of people in Europe are now spending a record amount on their income on energy. Uh, Gerhard Schroeder, the former uh, a chancellor of Germany, said, well, the answer is simple. Turn on Nord Stream 2 and our problem will be solved. How much of this is just let them eat cake, that the elites don't care about wholesale gas and electricity prices surging? The elites don't care that folks are foraging in the woods for sticks. Folks don't care that German that, that Europeans are now being told to shower once a week. That is just they don't care. A minute, Jack Rasmus. Yeah, they think they can get through the winter by rationing is what they think. And they think that after the winter, you know, there'll be alternative sources they're going to be able to uh, get energy from. Uh, you know, they, they probably believe that the recession is going to reduce demand for uh, energy, uh, you know, in businesses and so forth elsewhere. And the energy producing countries will then be able to uh, uh, send them some of the energy, uh, you know. They, they they think they can get through this, you know, okay. and they can take the heat, and um, you know, it no, will well, there be won't over. be any, there won't be any heat to take. <laughs> yeah, that's Jack. one good thing they <laughs> wanted to take the heat. <laughs> there won't be any heat for them, Jack. That's the problem. <laughs> Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it, man. Have a wonderful weekend. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. A letter has been hand-delivered to the chair and ranking members of the House and Senate Foreign Affairs, Judiciary, and Intelligence Committees. The signatories to this letter, all American citizens, all of whom were included on the blacklist issued on July 14th by the Ukrainian government office, the Center for Countering Disinformation, under Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, have been accused of promoting, quote, Russian propaganda, end quote, and declared to be, quote, information terrorists, end quotes, and, quote, war criminals, end quote, by this foreign entity. They strongly protest the threats to their constitutional right to free speech, to academic freedom, and to the threat of physical harm coming from a nation at war with the nation they are falsely accused of representing in their speech and writings. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's one of those people on this blacklist and one of the signatories to the aforementioned letter, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So talk about this issue in the wake of the assassination of Daria Dugina, whose name was on this list, as well as this site called, uh, how do you pronounce it, uh, Myro Tavoritz? Right. Mark Tavoritz, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Scott Ritter. Well, I mean, this is a, this is a very serious issue. Um, we, we have a situation where um, speech, uh, disagreements over speech, um, is being treated as a capital crime, and uh, the punishment 
um, is death for those who dare speak out against the Ukrainian uh, government and uh, its policies, uh, its behaviors, um, <laughs> its stance in this war. Uh, you know, the, the, in, in a free society, uh, nations should not be afraid of free speech. If you're doing the right thing, if you're on the right side of history, if the facts line up with you, um, you, you should never fear the outcome of a vigorous, heated uh, debate, discussion, and dialogue about, about any issue. Because if, again, you're on the right side, more times than not, people will come to the right conclusion, which is you're doing the right thing. When you have, let's just say a whole bunch of, um, you know, well-regarded, I'll leave myself out of this, but well-regarded, you know, academics, intellectuals, journalists, experts uh, on, on the issue of Ukraine and Russia uh, who align against Ukraine, that should tell you something, that maybe Ukraine's up to no good. And when Ukraine decides that the penalty for daring to expose, um, you know, the, the odious nature of their regime and their activities uh, is death, to be permanently silenced, uh, that should confirm that, you know, Ukraine is not on the right side of history. Ukraine is fully aligned with, you know, the... the, the malign forces who, uh, you know, aren't, aren't behaving in a manner which is uh, conducive to international peace and security. You know, the other thing I think that makes this this makes clear is, you know, all this discussion we've he heard about an information war. There's an information war. The truth is the information war is not against Russia and it's not against China. It's against, I would say, the American people in our instance, but it's against the people of the West, an information war that says we must control Information so that you only get things that support the narrative that we want you to believe. So the the the, the U.S. Empire, the U.S. and its uh, vassals are literally um, engaged in a war, as they call it, an information war. But as this shows, there is violence involved in this war against its own people and those who speak out. Scott. Well, yeah. In the case of Ukraine, there's there's always been violence in the information war since 2014. Um, this uh website has published uh, on a number of occasions, um, you know, these these blacklists, which are really hit lists, which are you know kill lists, and people that appear on this um, uh, lose their lives uh, and through acts of violence perpetrated by the Ukrainian government and its uh, proxies. So you know, you're right. This is this is about violence. What's shocking isn't that the Ukrainian government is engaged in this activity. I mean, if, right. if you're an odious regime, that's what you do. Uh, what's shocking is that they're being supported by the United States, Great Britain, and other uh, European uh, nations and entities. Um, people, you know, nations, groups that, um, you know, embrace democracy and the freedoms that are enshrined uh, in, 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 in the democratic principles, especially freedom of speech, uh, freedom to disagree, um, that, that these, you know, the United States, Great Britain and others are, you know, complicit with the Ukrainians in seeking to silence uh, dissent and not just silence dissent within Ukraine, but to silence dissent at home. I mean, the United States supports this list 
They're actively working with the Ukrainians in the production and maintenance of this list. And this list includes Americans. They can leave me off. We know the United States government doesn't like me. I'm okay with that. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there um, who, you know, have, have not, that they don't have the history that I have with the U.S. government. The people who are pure academics, pure, um, you know, historians and, 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 and people with good intent. Uh, not that I don't have good intent, but, you know, they, and, and they're being targeted. Uh, to be silenced. And now it's not just silenced temporarily, muzzled, to be killed, to be killed. This is very problematic. And this is why the letter that was presented um, to, to, to Congress is so important, because Congress must take action. Congress is prohibited by the Constitution to promulgate laws which, you know, in, uh, result in the a suppression of free speech. Uh, and Congress has passed a law that funds the Ukrainian government to carry out these activities by proxy. Um, so therefore, Congress has passed a law to silence free speech. And maybe Congress didn't know it. I mean, I watched a video of, um, of, of Christine Gillibrand being confronted at a town hall over this issue, and she feigned ignorance. So what list? I, I've never heard <laughs> of this list. I, I mean, it's not as though I didn't send her a letter, but... Um, you know, she's, I didn't know anything about this list. Okay, fair. Now you do. Now. Right. Now you do. And if this doesn't become the highest priority, and I literally mean this, this is one of the most important issues before Congress as we speak. This is the Constitution. This is the, one of the most fundamental rights that Americans have, freedom of speech. You take away freedom of speech, we cease to function as a free and open society. Uh, Congress must rise to the occasion. And if they fail to do so, what we're finding out is that Congress is likewise knowingly complicit in the suppression of the speech of Americans in violation of the Constitution and, frankly speaking, in violation of everything that democratic society stands for. Elaborate on the statement you just made about yourself and where you said, take me out of this. I don't have a problem with the government, you know, doing this to me. No, I do have a problem. What, I, what, I, what I'm trying to say here is, you know, some people might say that. Well, wait a minute. Let, let, me, let, me, let, me just, let me just finish framing my question. Because you swore an oath to protect the Constitution against enemies foreign and domestic. You put your life on the line for your entire military career protecting the country. And... Are you drawing a distinction between the country that you swore to protect and the current iteration of the government that is involved in it? Is, is that a distinction for you, or am I, am I missing the point? Oh, no. First of all, it's always a distinction. The government is nothing. Uh, it's government of the people, by the people, mm -hmm. for the people. Mm -hmm. So what is the government? Nothing. Nothing. It, it, it literally doesn't matter. The only thing that matters when we talk about the United States of America is the Constitution. From that document and the principles enshrined therein, that we, the people, get to decide how we want to be governed. The government does not get to decide how it wants to govern us. That, uh, people need to keep, you know, keep that in mind. The government is not all-powerful. The government is nothing. We can make it go away today if we wanted to. 
All we have to do is act. Um, you know, the government represents us. We consent to be governed. We create the conditions under which the people we elect to represent us in higher office govern us. Uh, they don't get elected and then decide how they want to govern. That's not how it works. So, no, I, I make a distinction between the United States of America and the institutions we call government. They are temporary. They, I mean, some of them are enshrined by the Constitution. We have a presidency. We have two houses of Congress. We have the judiciary. Okay, that's part of the framework that, we, you know, that we've created. But when we breathe life into that and we fill it with beings who, who act, they act on our behalf. They don't act uh, as, as dictators. So there's a, there's, a, there's a definite distinction between the Constitution, which I took an oath to uphold and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and those who govern us in a manner which is inconsistent with that document. Here's the other thing. You know, in the Constitution, at least in the, in, in the Bill of Rights, the First Ten Amendments, number one, in the first one, is freedom of the press, because they understood the importance of freedom of the press. You cannot have a democracy without a free press. And if you look at this list and the people on it, where are they speaking out? They're on the news. They're on various, they're writing articles. This is an attack on the press. This is clear. You know, Joe Biden saying we've got democracy versus autocracy and things of that nature, when you eliminate the free press and and people's opportunity to speak out in the press, there's nothing relating democracy related to democracy left, Scott. I, I, I agree 100 um, percent. And, you know, this is just the suppression of free speech. It's the suppression of a free press. And um, it's extraordinarily problematic. I, I also, you know, laugh at um, my fellow conservatives, uh, who, you know, somehow say, well, you know, you're not the press, Scott, come on. You're, you're doing that internet stuff. You're doing that blogging stuff. You're, you're writing for, you know, consortium news. What is that? What is RT? That's Russian stuff, man. It's not free press. And I, I, I remind you, know, Anton Scalia in speaking out of defense of a security or uh, a uh, Supreme court ruling that I despise citizens United um, would always say, you know, more speech is better. More speech is better. The more speech, the better. There's nothing wrong with more speech. We need more speech. Okay. We're giving you more speech and you know what? You can degrade it all you want with your little, you know, how, how you want to cloud. Yeah. We're not the New York times. We're not the Washington post. Thank God. What we are, what we are is telling the truth. I mean, the institutionalized press, the gray lady and, uh, and, 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 and institutions there you know, have failed us repeatedly, repeatedly. One only has to go back and look at the debacle that was Iraqi weapons of mass destruction and understand that that was not the exception. That was the rule. And that rule is continuing to be in play today when we speak of Ukraine. And thank God we have people like Ray McGovern and others who come out and dare challenge the narrative being put forward by mainstream media. And yet, Scalia's words ring hollow because apparently more speech is not the standard. Less speech is the standard. Only speech that conforms to the officially anointed narrative is the standard. And this is the exact opposite of what our founding fathers wanted when they wrote those words in the First Amendment. You know, our mantra here or our tagline at Sputnik is telling the untold. 
And when I first came here and saw that on the door, I said, oh, wow, that's clever. I have now come to see, and that's more than clever. It is what we do. It is what we're about. And we are under attack for doing that. Scott, in your sheer piece post entitled Chuck Schumer's War on Free Speech, you write about Andriy Shapovalov, a a Ukrainian civil servant whose salary paid for by U.S. taxpayers, and he convened this roundtable in Kiev on countering disinformation, and he published a list of names of 72 people who he accused of deliberately spreading disinformation about Ukraine. Uh, Talk about this element or component as it relates to uh, the bigger piece of this blacklist, what's the the ill fate that has befallen some of the folks on it. Well, you know, when, when the when the blacklist first came out, published by this, this center, um, it, it was just basically a list of journalists who uh, and, and, and intellectuals whose activities uh, the Ukrainian government uh, believed fell into the, quote unquote, pro-Russian side. Um, and therefore, they were being singled as Russian propagandists. Now, that alone is problematic, especially here in the United States, where People like Chuck Schumer and others have derided any criticism of the pro-Ukrainian policies of the United States government as being out of Putin's playbook, you know, uh, being Kremlin talking points uh, without ever talking about the facts, the, the you know, the, the, the real information put out there, whether or not it's you know, accurate or not. They, they, they just smear it as Russian propaganda. And that has a chilling effect. It's very, very tough to um, to get placed in you know, most, I'm not going to say mainstream, but uh, uh, in, in, in influential um, uh, publishing uh, venues, it's very difficult to get placed in there uh, if you're called a Russian propagandist. I've been rejected by many because mm-hmm. they say, well, no, no, you're, you're, too, you're too pro-Russian. I'm like, well, I'm sort of pro-truth. This is like rejecting my writings on whether it's a mass destruction by calling me pro-Saddam. That's how stupid this is. Um, but, but what 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 happened at that roundtable was worse. First, let's uh, let's let's frame it a little bit bigger. The roundtable was hosted by a guy who's paid for by U.S. taxpayer money. That's the gentleman you spoke of. It was organized by a congressionally created and mandated and funded non-governmental organization. So the U.S. government paid for the organization of this, and then it was attended by U.S. State Department representatives. So you'd say, okay. So all these people are giving their, 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 their green light to the concept of Russian propagandists, but it went further because he didn't just limit it at Russian propagandists. He said those who are on this list are information terrorists who deserve to be arrested and tried as war criminals. You know, we hang war criminals. We hang them by the neck until death. So what he's saying, and we kill terrorists. So what he's saying is if you're on this list, you – deserve to die. And guess who was on the list? Daria Dugina. And others. And 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 she was killed by the Ukrainian government. It wasn't, you know, it's bad enough to say that they they say this, they put it out there and then they wait for um, you know, uh, partisans to become motivated and say, "Well, I'm going to take the law into my own hand and I'm going to kill X Y and Z because they're on this list, they're terrorists, they deserve to die." They're being killed by the Ukrainian government, the same government 
and the same security services that are being funded by the United States government. The United States government is the assassin here. Let there be no doubt. While the, the, the person that planted the bomb that killed Dugina was a Ukrainian uh, intelligence officer who brought her 12-year-old daughter into the play. I mean, that alone speaks volumes about the quality of the people we're dealing with here. Um, and, and, and she received her orders from the Ukrainian special services. Sitting right next to the special services are British intelligence representatives and American intelligence representatives. There's nothing that happens in Ukraine that we're not aware of in Party 2. Um, and so we were either silent conspirators or maybe more. Maybe more. We don't know. And now we come back to the role of the United States Congress. Because, you know, in the 1970s, they held the church hearings about CIA-backed assassinations, and they determined that this was a very, very bad thing. Well, it's happening today. It's used by proxy, but it's happening today. U.S. taxpayer money uh, being orchestrated and manipulated by U.S. intelligence services are involved in the process of assassinating people, not because they're terrorists, not because they're uh, black marketeers or drug dealers, because they dare speak freely. Free speech has become a crime worthy of the death penalty, and that's not just the Ukrainian government's doing it. It's the American government, and Congress better get to the bottom of this. And the Ukrainian agents that are involved are being paid with American taxpayer dollars to circumvent the United States Constitution. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. Enjoy your weekend, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Carla Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Zuckerberg says Facebook censored Hunter Biden's story after FBI warning. The Meta CEO said he decided to bury the news story after the agency warned him about potential, quote, Russian propaganda, end quote. Well, it's Friday, so it's panel time. And so let's turn to our first panel. We're joined by a writer at the polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of a Ukraine negotiation kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, welcome back. Great to be here, gentlemen. Thank you. So Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg has said his platform worked to limit the reach of an explosive story about President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, after federal law enforcement told him to be, quote unquote, vigilant about foreign misinformation. Uh, Jim, let me start with you. There are a couple of things here. One has to do with the power of Facebook to, quote unquote, bury a story like this. And one of the other things I find interesting is I'm wondering how problematic this is going to become, how much more problematic this is going to become for Joe Biden, because this story just will not go away. Jim Kavanaugh. 
you mean the story of the potential corruption of, of the Bidens in relation to Ukraine, et cetera? Yes, sir. Uh, that, yes, sir. That is the story. Yes, sir. Yeah, that, that is the story that won't go away. But you know what? It hasn't appeared yet either. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the reason it won't go away is because you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's what we're that's what we see here. I mean, this Biden laptop, it's just disgraceful. We see this. This is obvious. You know, they suppressed a story about a presidential candidate on behalf of another presidential candidate. That's what they did. They made up the the, the the line that it was possibly Russian disinformation, and when there was absolutely no proof of that, and it was obviously true, and it had been, you know, confirmed by people who were involved in the emails, et cetera. And you have things in it that are, as you say, you know, when when Hunter Biden is saying, "I give half of everything to my father," you've got to say, "Oh, wait a minute, we got we should look into this." I mean, and it would be done. And listen, Republican voters know this would never have been squashed if it were a story about. A, uh, Don Senior and Junior, it would never have been squashed. So, so you know, and it, it. But the thing is, you know, will we ever get an investigation of this? I kind of doubt it, frankly. You know, and maybe if the Republicans take over the Congress or the Senate or the House, they will do some investigation of it. But I think they're a little squeamish about that too, because you know they don't want to turn over too many uh, rocks under which creepy crawlies will come out. So it's 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 very bizarre, but what we see in the story in what happened with, with Rogan and, and Zuckerberg is that, you know, and it's funny because at the end they say, well, it, it turns out, you know, the people accuse Facebook of being a, a, a left a, a, a left leaning bias. It's not left leaning bias. It's Democratic Party bias. It's a bias of a certain political narrative that isn't a leftist narrative as far as I'm concerned. But you know, from the point of view of the right it seems that. And uh they have an argument about this. And this is just five years of nonsense with Russiagate, nonsense over the election, and really, frankly, it's political interference uh, that's worse than Watergate. Steve Poikin, in your thoughts. Uh, Steve, let me add one quick thing. Let me one quick thing. I think it's important. The we we did that. We we found out after all this that the FBI had the laptop for, uh, excuse me, the hard drive information for a year before this happened. So the FBI had the hard drive. They knew beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty that it was not Russian propaganda. In fact, they knew that it was all true. Knowing that it was true, they went to Facebook and no doubt Twitter and the rest of them and said, it's Russian propaganda. Don't do it. But they knew it was true, and they had it, and they hid the fact that they had it. Steve Poikinen. Hang on. I'm trying to wrap my head around the FBI uh, being involved in a politically motivated <laughs> narrative and information campaign around election time. Historically, this is just out of the scope of reality, Garland. I'm sorry. I don't know. I may have to leave. I may. Um, the, what's fascinating, really, and and, and it isn't just you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it really looks like they've worked on um, they've worked on the human skin a little bit since the last time he was on camera. You know, that looks a little bit more believable. And they had him programmed to deposition mode. So he wasn't giving away any real information. This is all stuff we more or less knew anyone who had been paying attention or had been the victim of 
censorship by Facebook in the first place or Twitter or any of the social media companies. But what the, what's happened is that today and yesterday, almost the entire Internet and as much of the media that wants to talk about it or cover it is only covering the FBI pressured Facebook into doing something in the past, not we have confirmed the authenticity of Ashley Biden's diary today, arrested the two people on the day that the Joe Rogan episode dropped, arrested two people that supposedly transported the diary across state lines to take it to media outlets. That's 100 percent true. And the stuff that is in that is the kind of thing that buries generations of a family. So that's what nobody is talking about because everybody is talking about the Zuck. Leaked slides detail YouTube's Ukraine censorship. Uh, posting screenshots from an internal training course reportedly cost a Polish contractor his job. A tutorial for YouTube's content moderator that emerged on social media shows that the global, the Google-owned platform has labeled a number of critical positions on the conflict hateful or extreme and can censor or demonetize creators on those grounds. Jim Cavanaugh, the, the censorship is running rampant, and it, it's amazing that it, it has gotten to a point in this country, folks, really particularly as it relates to Ukraine, folks really have no clue. Be, because of where they're putting their faith into the sources of information and media that they're turning to. Yeah, I, you know, why, why are they not proud of this? Why are they firing this guy? Why is there some secret about what they're doing? If, they're, if, if they claim to be upholding truth and justice in the American way or whatever virtues they think they're upholding, they should be proud of it. And they should say, yeah, this is what we're doing. But of course, it's a little bit of a problem legally because if they're you know, if they're not, you know, uh, uh, the edited, curated journals of opinion, which they could be if they wanted to, and in fact are, then they would be covered by the 230 exemption, uh, Section 230 exemption for essentially uh, uh, online fora. So they, they, you know, what people have to realize is that is what they are. They are curated, edited sources of political opinion and political line. They're promoting a political line, which is neither Republican or Democrat, although a lot of times it, 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 it does skew to the Democratic Party, but it's certainly the American imperialist line and the American capitalist line, which is bipartisan. And this, what you're seeing here is that they do this through what, you know, are direct, but in, in not so easy to see subtle ways through the algorithms. And they steer the algorithms. And this is what Zuckerberg said, and this is what this guy's slide shows. The slides show that, you know, they jigger the algorithms to make sure that you see what they want you to see and don't see what they don't want you to see. And they maintain the narrowness of the Overton window that way. And that's what they're about. Now, so we have to understand that, that we're, 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 we're dealing with organizations that claim to be one thing that is open uh, forum for forum for discussion, but are in fact another thing. They are closed and edited and curated uh, journals of political uh, pr promoting a particular political line. Steve Poikinen. You guys know how I like to come on here on panel day and answer questions by telling stories, right? Well, I'm going to do that again. Um, I'm going to I'm going to give you an ex a personal example uh, of what this is. 
So I have had uh, a show for about four years called Slow News Day. Um, it is still to this day has a YouTube channel. Uh, I have been demonetized on YouTube since about uh, February of 2019. Um, and uh, and I also have a channel on Rockfin that I first started paying attention to in about November of 2020. Uh, on that YouTube channel, there are less than 6,000 people subscribed to it. If I put a video out, it would get maybe, the, you know, a couple hundred, couple thousand views, maybe. On Rockfin, a platform that has... Uh, I 90% less representation on it. I have the number one morning show on the platform. I'm consistently outperforming uh, larger content creators on YouTube. And I have four times the amount of subscribers on that Slow News Day channel than I do on YouTube, which is the largest video streaming platform on in the world and the second largest search engine in the world, which brings me to another point about this content moderation and the censorship. What they're effectively doing is having the second largest search engine in the world pre-censored for, uh, for consumption. That, that's something that it, it's, you know, Orwellian doesn't describe it. This is what totalitarian governments do all throughout history, they demand that any information that goes out be pre-approved before release. That's where we're at with YouTube right now. A group of 16 American citizens, including former politicians and military service members, are asking Congress to take action after a Ukrainian government agency published a blacklist of persons it accused of promoting Russian propaganda and, in fact, referred to these people as information terrorists. That is in particularly uh, concerning in that uh, some people uh, from Ukraine recently carried out an assassination on uh, Daria Dugina, who is the brother, who is the, uh, the daughter of a, a Russian philosopher by the name of Alexander Dugan, and their people are concerned two things, that they may be uh, facing some kind of violence, number one, but number two, it appears that this is directly connected to the United States government and their own tax dollars. We'll start with you, Jim Cavanaugh. Well, yeah, this is, you know, it's extremely dangerous uh, that this uh, website, uh, uh, call it uh, Peacemaker or something, is the English uh, mirror Merod Varets is doxing journalists with uh, the pretty clear implicit intention that people should go after them, <laughs> and with the result that people do go after them and kill them. I mean, this happened to journalists in, in uh, Ukraine after this started, this website started up. So, you know, and we know that uh, certainly looks like this is a website which is supported by uh, by you know, Western governments and Western money and absorbed by Western intelligence. So it's a very dangerous thing when you see uh, Dugina being, her car being blown up, <laughs> you know, and, you know, be, be, you know that uh, any, really they're willing to do this to anybody. This is a war situation. Let's, you know, that is true. And it's an information war. That is true. There are people who are saying things that skew to one side or the other, and that makes a difference. And the people who are involved in the war don't want to hear, they're going to get rid of the information warriors on the other side. So it's, you know, unless, you know, but we, 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 we tend, we want not to say, oh, we're going to blow up someone who disagrees with the Russian or the Ukrainian project in, in Ukraine, but 
and, you know, isn't picking up guns and fighting, but is just stating their opinion about it. But in fact, that is the situation now that the Ukrainian side, and it's the Ukrainian side, that has decided they're going to go after uh, and they're going to dox and uh, incite violence against people who have a different opinion about their position in the war than they think everybody in the world should have. And in fact, Roger Waters' name has now been added to that Mira Varets site. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? Well, I mean, this is this is something that, you know, I have a, a personal bias towards being very, very anxious about the existence of in the first place, because I have friends and colleagues whose names are on this list. And we've been reporting on the existence of this list since 2018 or 2019, because, you know, like my friend Eva Bartlett is on has been on this list since uh, she first started reporting on the Donbass. Um, it's. To have to have something as as arcane and, and as I mean, just disgusting as a kill list in general, let alone for people who are merely trying to walk outside and report what they see, or talk to people who live where a conflict is happening and then report on what they've said because they don't have as much of a voice, uh, and to have one of the addresses be Langley for where we you know for where it originates from. Scott Horton pointed that out. It's pointed out <laughs> in the articles um, to, to have, you know, people directly tied to the U S state department connected to the original setting up of the website. There's no, there's, I mean, there's no way to argue around the fact that the United States government is at least at the very least facilitating all of these acts of outright terror on journalists, on celebrities, on anyone who falls under the category of dissident for whatever the the conflict of the time is. Forget showering, it's eat or heat for shocked Europeans hit by energy crisis. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, it's it's getting worse, it's not getting better, and uh, it really seems as though the the government, the the leaders of these European governments have have shot themselves in the foot, following American sanctions, and it's almost as though their their policy responses let them eat cake. Yeah, uh, well, let them drive Teslas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's really bizarre because they are shooting themselves in the foot politically and socially. They're shoot, they're, they're destroying their own societies and economies. Uh, and social economies. And we've seen it, you know, people are being told to go out and gather up wood, but only seven centimeters long. And they're being told they can't shower and they're being told they uh, can't, they can only heat one room of the house. And there was the great, uh, I don't know if you saw that, that the billboards that are being put up on bus stations in England of the Ukrainian flag saying, you're going to have to be cold this winter because they need it more than you. Literally, you know, telling people we're giving it, we're, we're sacrificing you for Ukraine and sacrificing your ability to stay warm in the winter for Ukraine. And, you know, uh, they're being upfront about it. So you can't avoid it. You can't, you can't hide from the fact that this is happening. And it's just a question of when and to what extent the populations will revolt against this and make it impossible. And politically, it's going to be impossible for the regimes to maintain this through the winter. And it's going to, that's where you're going to start seeing, I think, the breaking up of the 
quote-unquote unity around the Ukraine war that uh, NATO was, is uh, waging in Ukraine. So we're going to see how this, work, this plays out, but it's not going to play out well for the populations of, of Europe, and it's not going to play out well, I think, for the current leadership regimes in, in European countries. Steve. Uh, no, I mean, Jim's absolutely correct here, and, and he can speak better than me on the, the historical political consequences of what happens when you try to overtly squeeze the middle class in Europe. Uh, so there's, um, I, the, you can't tell people this with a straight face and then go get on a yacht. You can, this is just a setup for, uh, for outright riots, and I feel like that's prevalent in the West. It seems like with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and all of the other revelations, the Zuckerberg and FBI thing, there's really a push to try to get some sort of mass action in a way that would, uh, would force the state's hand to, to be heavy. Um, and I hope that, that some cooler heads prevail. And in light of the fact that people are being told to gather sticks or eat or shower, <laughs> that people start to talk to their neighbors again, get on some sort of mutual aid and community schedule and, and remember that they've had to do this before. You know, Jim, and, and looking at the near future for the people in in Europe, when you think about you can if you're out in some little you know burg in the uh, you know the hinterlands yeah you can have a you can have a, a you know a fireplace or a wood stove or something but if you're in and there's major you know Europe is 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 you know has all these gigantic cities you're in the midst of these cities in a high rise. You ain't building no fire. There ain't no way to get around if you don't have power. Your toes are going to you count your toes every day because two or three of them are going to freeze off each night. So how do you maintain a society, a civilized society? And my thoughts, if they continue the direction they're going in, Jim, this thing's going to fall apart. People are going to tear Europe to pieces. I mean, that's, it seems to me, and I mean, figure literally, not figuratively. Um, Jim. Yeah. When, when Sandy came through New York uh, and was it 2011 or whatever, you know, half the city went dark and the elevators were out and, you know, you don't realize what you count on that has to be produced every day with energy. You know, the toilets don't flush because the water isn't being pumped up to the 12th and 13th and 40th floor of the building. You know, and if you have to get out for food, you got to walk down 40 flights or 20 flights. This isn't going to happen. So you have this situation, as you say, in cities and modern uh, urban centers where life goes bananas very, very quickly, where life disappears, where the fundamentals of life just disappear quite quickly. And, you know, what they're doing is they're, you know, the guy from uh, Forbes said yesterday or something that Europe is turning into a third world economy. And you're going to have people in, you know, the middle class, lower middle class, certainly in working class uh, urban centers whose lives are going to just be reduced to, you know, for foraging and doing it while walking down 20 flights of stairs. And, you know, and while freezing in their apartments, because where are you going to build the fire? We've, you can't go out and forage wood and build a fire in your apartment. So this is, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, they, they, what really is happening, you know, to a certain extent, I think, is that they're, they're, they're lying and they're actually buying and they're going to buy more 
energy from Russia uh, as much as they can behind the scenes and try to look like look like they're maintaining the sanctions. But at some point, the sanctions are going to have the sanctions regime is going to have to start cracking explicitly, and that will be a, a hell of a, a, a self-inflicted wound for them. You know, Steve. Let me add this to it. I like zombie movies. Always like them. I haven't watched many lately. Why? It's the philosophical part of it. When society falls apart and a small group of people are wandering around trying to survive and ultimately they find out the zombies aren't the problem. It's other packs of humans now who are operating in an environment with no law and no power and no nothing and people are trying to survive and all of a sudden not only the zombies are eating each other, you got a Donner Pass sitting going on. And now it's all of this stuff. I'm throwing that all out there because, like, I'm just thinking World War Z, that's Berlin in about four months. What? No, I mean, this is, this is, very, this is very serious, though. It is, and it's very relevant. And a good friend of mine, Charlie Robinson, just did an episode of his, his show, Macroaggressions, titled Where Did All the People Go, in relation to... Uh, you know, the next several years going forward because of all of these things that are going on. And when society breaks down, when there is that collapse, there's a significant amount of damage that gets done, not just to the people who don't make it, but to the people who do survive. And generationally, that can have a massive effect going forward. So again, like if anybody's listening and there's a European audience Get on your mutual aid now because you're going to need it. The state isn't there to help you. <laughs> There's a an RT piece, uh, EU-branded third world economy, and there's a, a paragraph here. If there's no ceasefire in Ukraine soon, chances are that Europe becomes so desperate this winter and supply chain so stretched that it has no choice but to relax some sanctions or convince non-EU partners to relabel and transship Russian commodities. When I read that, <clears throat> if there's no ceasefire in Ukraine, Boris Johnson just went to Ukraine and told Zelensky, don't negotiate a ceasefire. So this this is using the Superman reference. This is truly Jim the Bizarro world. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was he who went and told them when they were about to make a, apparently uh, an agreement with Russians in in March. Bojo went there and told them, "Don't you dare!" Yeah. And speaking on behalf of the West, we want you to keep fighting, and we'll make sure you stay. We you stay in this fight. And then he just went back. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you ask him, hey, <laughs> are there any soldiers left to die? Yeah, we got plenty. Oh, well, they keep, keep fighting, keep fighting until they're all gone. Then we'll work with the Poles and, you know, we'll do what we got. And the philosophical zombie. How about that? <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. Well, that was, that was in March. But now, they're, now there are no, no soldiers left and no good professional soldiers left in Ukraine. I mean, so I just how this this is going to continue in Europe, how it's going to continue in Ukraine. Uh, with the army, the army is being dev- has been decimated and going to be devastated by this. So, but they want it to go on, and the, the problem is they can keep the conflict going, even if there's a decisive defeat of the Ukrainian army in some way. They can arm and supply fighters in Western Ukraine, and you know, I, I, it, it, the Russians aren't going to take over the whole of Ukraine and minister it. They don't want to do that, and it would be foolish to do that, and it would be, of course, the United States in some sense would like to try, uh, but 
you know, once the uh, Russians have established and, you know, control a certain amount of territory they think is necessary, then, you know, there'll be uh, a rump Ukrainian state there that's going to be supplied forever. But this is a forever war that the United States wants to continue. But the problem is, is it, 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 does this mean this forever economic war that the effects of which are devastating Europe and turning Europe into a third world third world economy well nobody knows the answer to this this is why even the you know strong american imperialists but intelligent realistic american imperialists we've gone into this without any notion of where what the end game is or could be that's a beneficial to us and steve there's another piece of this that says until some solution is provided well, turn on Nord Stream 2 and your problem, a lot of your problem will be solved. Stop picking the fight, Steve. Well, that's not U.S. foreign policy. What were the U.S. Oh. foreign policy is what Jim alluded to, which is the forever war. It, there's, there's no, there's the only advantage to diplomacy and withdrawal and having any sort of sane approach going forward is the preservation of the status quo as it stands. And we're already in the middle of transitioning the West onto a blockchain economy. We're already in the middle of transitioning the West onto a QR code for entry civilization. So they can't pump the brakes on it. You can't do diplomacy. You've already got one foot into the future. Last thing I'll get from uh, Jim, and that is uh, Margaret Kimberly's article, Liz Cheney for president. Liberals love Liz Cheney. We got two. We got about a minute and a half. Jim. Uh, yeah, well, they love Liz Cheney. They love John McCain. They <laughs> love all the most vicious. I mean, Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney, the most vicious Republican warmongers and, you know, anti-abortion rights, anti-everything that are now heroes for the Democrats. Literally, it's just bizarre and disgraceful. And it shows you that at the end of the day, there are certain things that are very important to both parties and they come together on that. An imperialist war and, you know, the, the elimination of Russia from the scene as a, and China as, as important rising powers is one of them. And Steve, we've got 30 seconds. She voted with Donald Trump 95 percent of the time. Well, you've got to be able to keep the show going if you want to keep people buying tickets, and that's what Liz Cheney's there to do. She's got to, to have something else to offer people in the 2024 midterms, even if she winds up being the Democrats' vice presidential nominee. Uh, and add one thing. That's what they liked about her. They didn't hate Donald Trump's policies. They just hated Trump. <laughs> hey, how about—so, so, so, Steve, 10 seconds. Are you Are you saying— Kamala Harris and Liz Cheney? 2024 is make America one party for real. It'll be whoever in Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger and then DeSantis and Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Jim, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, Steve Foykin, and gentlemen, thank you both so much. Have wonderful weekends. We really appreciate your analysis. We look forward to having you guys back. Take care. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Popular Resistance has a piece, Blinken Returns Empty-Handed from Africa Tour. Secretary of State's traveled to three countries seeking to undermine the influence of China and Russia. He visited three African Union member states during early this month in an attempt to enhance the presence of Washington on the continent. This tour came amid an escalation of tensions between the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China in regard to their relations with Washington. For insight into this and other issues, uh, let's turn to our next panel. We're joined by the national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report, Ajamu Baraka. As always, Ajamu, welcome back. Good to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. Ted, as always, welcome back. Thank you. So, uh, Ajamu, let's start with you. Blinken goes to the African Union and visits three <clears throat> member states, and he he goes in talking about the respect that he res- the United States respects sovereignty and the ability of countries to decide their own to chart their own courses and and to decide their own fates and the, the voices of uh, of people must be heard and represented. And then all of this in the midst of over the last probably 18 months, AFRICOM has helped to back, what, six or seven coups in in African countries. Uh, You've got Gregory Meeks crowing about being able to pass legislation sanctioning African countries that did not go along with the U.S. sanctions regime, regime, as basically China and Russia are there offering a whole lot more to to a lot of these countries uh, than, than just militarism and, and intervention in their politics. Ajamu Baraka. Well, I think you, you have uh, surfaced the, the, the issues, the challenges to U.S. policy in Africa. This trip that Blinken uh, took is probably about uh, six decades too, too late. <laughs> if the U.S. <laughs> If the U.S. had been concerned about um, its standing in Africa and that relating to African nations as, as vassal states, um, if it was concerned and committed to African sovereignty, then its policies would have been fundamentally different. It would not have overthrown various uh, African states, including uh, Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah. Um, it would not have pursued policies that in essence, made the African economic uh, dependence to not only the U.S., but to, to the West. If they were concerned about uh, their standing in Africa in the last couple of decades, they would have ensured that uh, the policies of the World Bank and the, and the International Monetary Fund would have been loosened to a certain extent that allowed for uh, less uh, on, onerous uh, funding and loans for African states. So the, the whole relationship would have been fundamentally different. But we know that the only, only reason why uh, Blinken went to Africa is that they are trying to desperately counter uh, the new conditions on the African continent that for the first time in many decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, African states have a little bit more leverage. So this is a desperate attempt to try to use soft power 
uh, to reverse their, um, their, 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 their history on the African continent. But it's contradictory because while they talk about sovereignty and respect, then you have, uh, as you referred to, a piece of legislation passed in Congress, the Malign Influence Act, that basically uh, is forcing African states to basically, uh, like George Bush, either you with us or you're against us. So white supremacy uh, is reflected in their policies. Uh, and because it's, it's a pathology, it's reflected in their contradictory uh, approaches to the issues of Africa and African sovereignty. Ted Rowe, your thoughts? Echoing all that, I think, and then the other flip side of the coin is exactly the fact that uh, in contrast to uh, America's perfidious uh, relationship with uh, Africa and what used to be called the developing world, uh, in uh, is that you know, Russia and the former Soviet Union have a long history of, of participating in the anti-imperialist struggle uh, in an enthusiastic way when often the United States, uh, if not always, was on the pro-imperialistic, uh, you know, colonial, neo-colonialist or co colonialist side of the equation. Um, China has uh, exerted itself um, externally over the last 20 to 30 years and has done so in a way that's in decided contrast to uh, the World Bank IMF policy of sort of uh, fiscal enslavement and usury. Um, instead, you know, the, the, like when China uh, you know, builds something for uh, one of the countries it's trying to uh, get closer ties with, it usually comes with a few to no strings attached, uh, which is a very different uh, approach than the United States. So, and then I think there's another part of the equation that we can't ignore, which is added to those two, you know, the fact that uh, the African African leaders sort of know, <laughs> they, they sort of know who their their friends are and who and who they are not. Uh, there's also the fact that the situation on the ground right now is not favorable for Ukraine or its allies. And uh, you know anybody can plainly see at this point that uh, Russia is very likely to prevail. So uh, you know basically, as the U as the U.S. and Ukraine uh, are trying to uh, you know <laughs> basically they're trying to to get friends uh, as they're losing. And you know uh, it's like in sports, it's hard to fill the fans when you haven't won any games lately. Uh, Ajamu, and add this, because there's another story I just want to th throw at you, and, and that's uh, China forgives 23 loans for 17 African countries. While the U.S. tries to pretend like, the oh, this thing in Ukraine just started on the 24th of February, the people in Africa, the people in the global south who have been facing oppression for literal centuries understand this through the lens of those centuries of imperialism that has oppressed them, and that is coloring their decisions. That's why they're choosing sides. I think a lot of these people look at it and say, finally, maybe this is an opportunity for us to get out from under the imperialist foot of, uh, of, of the United States empire. Your thoughts, Ajamu? Well, I think there's, there's definitely um, a sympathy among the, the people in Africa to the plight uh, that uh, the Russian people and even the Ukrainian people are facing, uh, being caught up in a, yet another uh, adventure where the Ukrainians have been targeted for sacrifice to advance U.S. geopolitical interests. They, I think the people understand that the, the Russians um, are involved in a conflict in which 
if the conditions were, were different, they would not have been involved in. Uh, and so there's some this great sympathy that that you know to the Russians, and I think that there's uh, a lot of support because finally it seems that uh, uh, a nation is able to in fact fight back and fight back effectively against these bullying uh, policies from the collective West. So yes, there's it's a it's a new day, uh, but we have to as we've talked about before uh, be careful because. While there, there's there's some 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 changes, the international balance of forces have not uh, shifted that fundamentally. There's definitely a, a new uh, trajectory, uh, but African uh, nations still find themselves uh, quite. Um, um, uh, they don't have the space that they would like to have, but that uh, that may be changing pretty quickly. Ted. I do agree with that. Um, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's, uh, I think it's also true that, um, you know, th- but I think the, the history of, uh, is, is just sort of front and present, uh, you know, maybe in the United States, people, you know, weren't aware of, you know, what ha- happened at Maidan and, uh, and, and the U S uh, involvement there to say the, to put it lightly, uh, and you know, how, uh, Russia has been was kind of you know backed up into a corner um, over the last eight years, uh, you know. I, but there, other people in other countries are not. You know, they they they've been following it. Um, it's just sort of every country in the world follows international news better than Americans do, and so I, I think they're you know obviously Africans can plainly see what's been going on, and uh, it's it's sort of not as you know, they're not going to have the knee-jerk pro-Ukraine reaction that has been ginned up or, you know, at least was ginned up initially. You're starting to see that, you know, fade here domestically, but at least has been the dominant narrative over the last five to six months. Let me come back to you, Ajamu, about this. One, China <clears throat> has decided that they're going to nominate the African Union to join the G20. Uh, I think that's a very, very positive positive move. And it shows, I think, some of the progressive politics that uh, can come from engagement with countries like China and with countries like Russia. And I also found it interesting that while uh, Blinken was on his trip to South Africa, <clears throat> the, he, he was with the South African Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Nalidi Pandor, and she challenged the United States on their position with the Palestinians. I mean, she came right out real clear and basically said to, in in effect, how can we trust you and why should we engage with you while you all are back in this this incredibly repressive play in in Palestine? I I, I thought that pushback, to me, spoke volumes, Ajamu. Well, you know, it really did. And and what it it did was to remind people in the U.S. who may not have been aware of the fact that that there's always been a really strong anti-Zionist movement in South Africa uh, because of of the experiences of of South Africans themselves with settler colonialism. So the sensitivity and the understanding of of what Palestinians are facing um, in Palestine is quite pronounced uh, in that country. So I wasn't that surprised myself when that issue uh, was raised. Uh, but it was a very nice opportunity for people in the U.S. to be reminded of the of the support 
given to the South African uh, racist apartheid regime by both uh, Israel and the United States of America. So that was a very powerful moment. I wish it get more play, uh, but you know it wasn't really that surprising to me. And, and what about the what about China's move to nominate the African Union to sit in the G20? Very very slick move. I mean, again, it, it demonstrates the the sophisticated politics and even the racial politics, if you will, mm -hmm. of the Chinese. Not making the same kinds of colonial mistakes that the U.S. and Europeans make, and always having to be uh, a massa. Uh, and so uh, that is, a, I mean, the EU is a member of, of the G20, so why not the, the largest uh, uh, continent on a well, you know, series of, of, of states on the African continent? T Ted Rawl, your thoughts? No, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, if, if you know, it's always very impressive to see uh, how China does these things. Um, you know, they, you know, obviously they have their own experience uh, during the 19th century of, uh, you know, British in particular and other foreign power, European powers, uh, colonizing and tr trying to just really effectively destroy China through the opium wars and so on. And, uh, you know, they, so I think they get it and they, they sort of can almost look at the United States as a compass that faced, that points reliably South, you know, the wrong way, you know, and just do the opposite of whatever uh, U.S. policymakers are, are after. Just show humility, a lack, you know, just just table the arrogance and, uh, you know, come off as reasonable and humane. And they're just going to, uh, they, they, just, they just know how to look good uh, time after time. Uh, Ajamu, if I could ask you this, I think one of the issues here is that China has an alternative structure, an alternative economic structure, an alternative social structure. They found one that works for them. We have people talking about, oh, China shouldn't do this or that with their people. The Chinese people are happy with it. They pulled 800 million people out of poverty as neoliberal capitalism absolutely crashes and burns economically, socially, et cetera. And it seems like the biggest anger that the U.S. has at China is that their system is working and it's rising and they're just in a battle with modernity and reality. Ajamu. Well, you know, I, I just gave an interview with, with the Global Times and I talked about the fact that one of the issues with the U.S. policy is that they just don't, don't seem to be able to handle the objective reality of the end of white world supremacy, uh, white world, white supremacy, that is. Um, and, and I mean, we see that in their policies, uh, policies that now verge on the, on the irrational, I mean, really counterproductive, even for empire. The, the Chinese have uh, their road to, uh, China, to, to socialism with Chinese characteristics. Uh, uh, they operating in the world still dominated by, by capitalist relations, no doubt about that. Uh, but what they have done is to center the objective needs of the Chinese people. Um, and so that's what they have done. That's profoundly different than what we see in the United States, in the West, uh, where the people are, are suffering, experiencing the contradictions of, of, of raw capitalism in its neoliberal form. So those, that contrast is, is a message and uh, a lesson, really, to people around the world. And it's part of the reason why the U.S. and the West has been have been losing so much influence 
over the last uh, uh, decade or so. Ted. Right. I think that's true. And then, of course, um, up until uh, throughout the Bush years and into the Obama years, uh, there was kind of a sense that the U.S. could continue to just resort to sort of naked militarism, uh, you know, no, not soft power, but, uh, you know, hard power and in order to, uh, you know, bully its way around the world. But the defeats in Iraq and uh, recently in Afghanistan have left the U.S. in sort of a, a, now, a situation that's analogous to uh, the U.S. in the late 1970s after the defeat in Vietnam. And so now there's, you know, I'm not saying that the U.S. is done with uh, wars of aggression. I, I don't believe that at all. Uh, but right now they're sort of, you know, the, the, their biggest project is drones and the proxy wars in Ukraine and Yemen. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're in a chastened mode. And so they kind of, they're kind of lost. Um, you know, soft power has never been, you know, a forte of the U.S. Uh, hard power is something that they certainly know how to do, although, you know, one could argue it's you have to go back to the Gulf War to find anything that looks like a real victory. Uh, and, you know, that's that's three decades ago. So, uh, I, I, you know, I think I think the U.S. is a little lost. And, uh, you know, and even Trumpism has helped to conflute to confuse all that, because, you know, the, the president, uh, former President Trump is very is, you know, he's not a pacifist, but he's skeptical of interventionism uh, and uh, and he's willing to talk to adversaries. So uh, that's you know also kind of. Um, you know, it, it's it's created a new situation, and uh, the U.S. is sort of lost. Switching continents and hemispheres, Orinoco Tribune has a piece, The Sword of Boulevard is Wielded Again by the People of Latin America. It's by Dan Kovalik. Gustavo Petro and his running mate, Francia Marquez, were inaugurated as the president and vice president of the Republic of Colombia. And for the first time since the liberation of Colombia from Spain by Simon Bolivar, Colombia now had leaders who promised to radically transform Colombia with it and with it, all of Latin America. And uh, Daniel was there for this inauguration. And he talks about the fact that Gustavo Petro actually brought the sword of Simon Bolivar to the inauguration. And Ajamu, let, let's start with you. What does this mean, and particularly because it's Colombia and the relationship, the hegemonic, the, the, the imperial relationship that the United States has had with Colombia and used Colombia as a launching point in its oppression of the continent? Well, let me just say this, um, um, that, that piece by Dan was a very moving piece because um, like Dan, uh, I was also a special guest uh, of the new uh, administration. And that, that entire inauguration was very uh, moving for all of us. And that was a very dramatic moment uh, when he made that, uh, that call, especially when, as the, the piece points out, the special relationship that he has to that sword, being a part of a guerrilla movement that, in fact, <laughs> captured the sword for a while um, as, a, as, as part of their resistance efforts. Uh, so it, this is a, a monumental moment in, 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 the, in our region. 
Um, Colombia uh, promises to uh, uh, to be one of the most significant shifts uh, in the region if they are able to uh, consolidate and actually begin to uh, attempt to address some of the needs that they have uh, vowed to address to uh, to to uh, better the conditions of Colombian people. But we know that they are going to be facing uh, significant opposition. Uh, both internally and and externally, um, so we uh, are, are here watching and participating in this process. Uh, with the upcoming elections in Brazil, uh, we see a, a a real possibility of a shift in such a way uh, that uh, it would be irreversible uh, for for U.S. policies uh, in the future going forward and being able to impose its hegemony on the entire uh, continent. And that's a good thing. Ted? I certainly hope it's irreversible. You know, I, I keep thinking of uh, US, recent U.S. efforts uh, in Honduras and, uh, you know, also obviously in Venezuela, uh, sort of an ongoing um, series of, of coups and attempted coups, uh, you know, that began with the uh, election of Hugo Chavez. Um, so... You know, I'm sure there's people at Langley who would love to, uh, you know, who are are hatching, uh, you know, sordid plots to uh, get rid of Petro. Uh, But let's, you know, I mean, let's hope it's let's hope it's true. I mean, certainly it's a different world uh, from the, you know, again, I'm going to hearken to the 1970s, but the 70s and 80s when, you know, Latin America, the, the term Latin American right wing dictatorship was kind of a standard thing. And now it, it really isn't, right? I mean, now it's the Latin America left-leaning democracies. Um, it's, a, it's a very different world. I mean, um, the, you know, the U.S. has basically lost Latin America. One hopes they, you know, they, they leave it lost. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm always worried that there's, there's schemes afoot. Ajamu, um, I also think that the um, the sword being there, the sword being a president, being present, was um, was very important too because of the timing. Because of course, Simone Bolivar, you know, freeing or helping to free uh, uh, Latin America from from Spanish imperialism at a time when you know. Um, Brazil, which, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the fifth largest and fifth most populous country in the world, um, is set to vote soon. And we may see, you know, Lula da Silva. And I think that it's perfect timing because it's it appears that Latin America this time is getting freed from the imperial boot of the U.S. empire and that that's in the process. And, you know, when Brazil falls, where do they go, Ajamu? Yes, and it's also a reminder of the, the sword and the role of Simone Bolivar in the, um, in the uh, uh, liberation of, of Latin America, uh, a reminder of the role of Haiti and the still important, uh, almost fundamental role of Haiti in completing the process of, 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 of the first phase of real authentic decolonization uh, in our region. But Ted makes a very important point and that, that we have to be reminded of. And what we are talking about here in Colombia, uh, and that is that we don't want to, we want to uh, try to manage expectations. We understand that the U.S. is not going to uh, and, and the, the Comprador and national right wing in Colombia are not just going to stand aside and, and allow for any kind of real uh, transformation of the Colombian state. Um, and so 
you know, when we say uh, irreversible, we what we refer to is if there's consolidation, if, as you just pointed out, this election in Brazil is successful and Lula uh, returns to power and the workers' power, the workers' party does not repeat some of the mistakes they made the first time around, um, then we, we see uh, that uh, we have a, a coalition of forces uh, that even though we have some states still struggling with some some issues, uh, that there will be a momentum there that would be very, very difficult for U.S. reactionary policy to reverse. Uh, uh, to, to So we, we're hopeful, but it's important that we we keep uh, we keep uh, mindful of, as Ted uh, said, uh, the the uh, the the hatchings of of, of reactionary policy. Uh, and the ability of the U.S. to, in fact, uh, 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 its mischievous power to undermine all of our plans here uh, in this region. Ted Raw. Well, yeah, just you know, I think I, I think it's uh, it's true. There's a lot of opportunities here. Um, one would, you know, this is a time when one would really love to see an international, uh, you know, progressive leftist coalition that was going to put pressure you know, on U.S. policymakers here domestically in order to say, look, hands off these countries. These are, you, know, you guys are always talking about how important sovereignty is. I mean, we know that's a joke, but maybe we should hold you to you know, try to hold these people to their high-flying rhetoric uh, you know, for once. Um, but, but right now, it's, it's going to be up to the people themselves in these countries because we just don't have the grassroots organizing uh, in organization in this country. Uh, you know, that that's, that's what we have to do. That's, that's the long overdue job that we, that we need to do here uh, in order to support uh, these people and, and their quest for uh, emancipation. We just have about a minute left. Uh, Ajamu, U.S. judge upholds ConocoPhillips' $8.5 billion award. Venezuela rejects the unlawful ruling. A Washington judge granted uh, ConocoPhillips final approval to enforce a multi-billion dollar arbitration award against Venezuela. They were granted this massive award by uh, as a compensation for three projects uh, that were nationalized by the former Hugo Chavez government. Uh, your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka. What, what a shameful uh, um, uh, spectacle. Here you have uh, this, this ruling based on the, uh, the abandonment of the process uh, by this phony uh, uh, Venezuelan government uh, headed up by Juan Guaido. Uh, it also it really demonstrates the limitations, the real limitations of so-called international law, that you have the ability to use law in order to advance imperialist uh, policies. So it's a shameful ruling. We hope that the Venezuelan government is, is able to continue to try to pursue uh, this uh, this issue okay. uh, to reverse diverse, to reverse course on this. Ajamu Baraka and Ted Rawl. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 